Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients focused on organ transplant and today we will talk about liver transplant and we welcome Dr. David Gerber who is Professor of Surgery in the Department of Surgery and he is the Chief of Abdominal Transplant Surgery and we also welcome Dr. Skip Hayashi, an Associate Professor of Medicine in our Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and he is the Medical Director of the liver transplant program at UNC. So welcome, Drs. Gerber and Hayashi. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Let's start this conversation with an understanding for a patient. What do you guys do? What do you, Skip, do as a hepatologist? And what do you, David, do as the liver surgeon? How should a patient think of your various roles? Skip? So these are patients often that are referred to us that have signs of liver failure, often cirrhosis. And so my job is to meet them, uh, assess them. Uh, first of all, make sure stay, they're stable and get them stabilized. And then quickly decide basically two questions. I, it comes down to just one, uh, do they need a liver transplant evaluation now or soon? And two, um, are they an appropriate candidate? Uh, not every person... Uh, can withstand the rigors of a transplant. And, uh, and it, we take it from there. And then we will follow them for quite a while uh, before the transplant, and we pick them up several months after the transplant. So before we go on to you, David, let me just ask you, when you've, why does a liver fail? What, what, what causes cirrhosis? Why would you want to do a transplant in the first place? So there's, a, there's sort of a long list of causes of cirrhosis. The more common ones these days, actually, probably the most I see now, something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, that's associated with things like diabetes, high blood pressure, being overweight, and it can affect the liver to the point where it develops cirrhosis. Um, there are other causes. Uh, people have heard of hepatitis C and hepatitis B. Of course, there's alcohol, and other uh, etiologies would be less common, and they break down to a lot of autoimmune diseases and genetic disorders. But there's a whole list of reasons to get cirrhosis. And cirrhosis is what? It's just advanced scarring of the liver. Um, it does not necessarily mean your liver is failing, but I like to say you're on the doorstep of failure, and uh, you need to be monitored. So if a liver scars, it means it can't regenerate? Not very well anymore, and uh, that's the problem. So the liver gets to a point, it does regenerate very well up to a point, but when it gets to a cirrhotic point, it doesn't do it very well anymore. So the liver is trying to repair itself, regenerate, try to repair itself and regenerate, and then at some point it just ends up scarring. Right, and, and then it creates other problems for the liver, and it shows, eventually it shows signs of failure, and that's when transplant certainly needs to be considered. So if Dr. Hayashi has seen this person already, Dr. Gerber, when, as the surgeon, do you get it mixed into the fray? So uh, we work very much in tandem in transplant between medical and surgical colleagues. Obviously, Skip and the hepatology team do their job in assessing the patient's liver function and liver disease and progression and the early assessment of if they would need a transplant. Now, to do a transplant it means major surgery. So we come in, the surgical team, more in a surgical evaluation to complement the existing testing that's been done. In simple words, I say to patients, to make sure you can successfully get through the surgical procedure and have a good recovery. 
So both of you have used the rigors of the transplant. What are you talking about? Folks with progressive disease of their liver, as he was talking about with cirrhosis, it comes to a point where that organ is no longer going to work functionally for you and would end up being um, sort of a early early mortality or early failure of life. So replacing that organ, which is something now which is part of our mainstream healthcare, is what we talk about with transplant. And it's just that. It's removing your entire diseased liver and replacing it with a healthy liver from either a deceased donor or a living donor. And there are some complexities to both of those. And that operation can take a while. That is. It's a big operation. It um, takes several hours, on average, probably six to eight hours. It's a procedure now we've been doing since the early 80s and roughly 7,000, 7,500 patients a year in the United States uh, undergo liver transplantation. In the world of kidney transplant, the kidneys stay in. But in liver transplant, the liver comes out, the old scarred liver comes out. Is that because of space or is that because of how you hook the organ up to blood supply? And Sure. So you bring up a great point. And this we talk about with our patients, you're right, with kidney transplants, we leave their old kidneys in place because typically, as you know, as a nephrologist, those kidneys have scarred down and they're all the way in the back. And the kidney gets put into a different anatomical location. It's called heterotopic transplant. In liver, we actually remove the diseased liver for two reasons. One you brought up, which is the blood supply. So the blood supply of the entire intestines goes through the liver. And we need that blood supply to go through the healthy liver so the liver can do its metabolic and detoxification functions. The other reason we remove that diseased liver is that scarred in chronically scarred liver is certainly at risk of developing liver cancers. And we would be continuing to survey that liver. And if we had to address cancers in that, say we had left that liver behind, that would make it very difficult to manage the disease. So the liver goes into its normal spot? Normal it's spot. hooked up to blood supply mm-hmm. and it's ready to roll. That's right. It's like replacing parts in the engine. Got to put them back where you took them out. How long does somebody wait for a liver on on the list? Let's say it's a deceased donor liver. How long do you, what do you tell patients? Yeah, so and for quite a while now, for probably, yeah, over a decade now, 15 years maybe, it's now sickest first. Unlike other organ wait lists, um, is my understanding, uh, on other organ wait lists, it's time on the list matters. Uh, liver, not so much. So it's really sickest first. And what I tell patients is if you're not that sick, you could sit on, sit on the list for literally years. On the other hand, if you get sicker and your priority then will go up, you can get a transplant within a matter of weeks, depending on how sick you actually get. How do you measure how sick somebody is? There's a score that you use. That's correct. And right now it's called the MELD sodium score. It's based on just four liver values. This was done to make it an objective and fair way to prioritize patients on the list. Um, These four lab values are actually plugged into an equation. And patients, I tell patients, they can actually do this themselves on on the computer if they like. They they just uh, Google it and they can find it. 
Uh, MELD scores range from 6 to 40. They're whole numbers. Uh, there's no higher, higher the worst. That's right. If you have a MELD of 40, you're going to need a liver pretty darn quick. And I usually say within a week, week or two, you're, you're, in, you're in pretty big trouble. MELD of 6 is normal. Right around a MELD of 15 to 17, 18 is when, in general, we start thinking about, hey, you, you ought to be thought about for a transplant. Or a so transplant these are blood issue. tests. Yes, correct. This is a simple blood test. Correct. It has to do a liver function test and then the serum sodium as well. And the serum creatinine, so mm-hmm. kidney function comes and in. And they're all mixing together with an online algorithm so you can calculate. The patient could calculate their Correct, score. correct. If they have those lab and these lab values are standard standard blood tests. Uh, you know, you don't, they're not a special order Let's or anything. Let's name them. Okay, so the serum sodium, the creatinine, the um, bilirubin, and the INR, which is a measure of how well your blood clots. And those are all, you know, standard blood tests and anyone can order in the uh, primary care or whoever. So if in this world of electronic medical records, if one got those four values, which the patient would end up being able to see, they could plunk them into this calculator and understand how that MELD score and their degree of sickness and potentially their position on the list? They can. Of course, there are a lot of caveats with that. For example, one of the big ones, if a patient happens to be on Coumadin, which is a blood thinner, that will artificially raise your INR. So therefore, then it doesn't accurately reflect necessarily your liver function or dysfunction, things like that. But yes, in general, it it will give you a ballpark idea. And where's the liver coming from, Dr. Gerber? So I'm going to add one more comment to Dr. Hayashi. So the patient always asks, well, where am I on the list? And this leads to your question of where does the liver come from? The list, essentially, each center has a list of their patients, but the list that patients are always asking about is a virtual list that gets generated when there's a deceased donor. Currently, livers are allocated in a model that takes out the the most sick patients So as Dr. Hayashi pointed out, those high melds, 36 up to 40, or people in fulminant liver failure, and it allocates those livers into one of 11 regions that go across the United States. So in, in North Carolina, we're in region 11. We share that region with South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, I believe, yeah, that's That's it. it. And there's a little snippet of West Virginia that bleeds into our region, but that's that's our region. So if you had a meld or your loved one had a meld of 40 and there was a donor anywhere in that region, you would likely be the first person on the list, assuming there isn't somebody else with a higher meld score. If there's nobody that's that sick, then the livers currently are allocated in what's referred to as a local model, and that's in North Carolina, there are two local districts. We're in one that covers sort of from essentially Winston-Salem, draw a line south, and goes all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And then there's another local area that would be on the west side of that line. As a patient then, don't you want to be listed in multiple spots to increase your chance of, of getting a liver without ending up being extremely sick? Sure. So that's a great question and a conversation that we have with patients. And maybe I'll let Dr. Hayashi carry that forward. Sure. And you're right. And you just have to kind of understand what David said about where these uh, local regions are. You obviously don't want to be listed 
in the same local region. That doesn't do you much good. But if you want multiple listings and patients to ask about this, if they have the ability to get to another center that's outside of our local region, sure, we, we often will let them know that, that is, uh, they can do that, and we often do recommend it. So what do you do with these folks who, have a, who are not super sick, who have substantial liver disease, who are symptomatic from their liver disease, who have swelling in their abdomen, who have swelling in their legs, who are a little bit yellow, but whose bone score is 18, 19, 20. Not high enough to get in an organ in a one area, but the person really, quality of life is, is not what they want. Would that person benefit from being listed in all sorts of places? Sure, and and obviously that brings up a lot of other issues. You know, socioeconomic. How how capable are they to get to regions afar? There's going to be out of pocket costs, obviously travel expenses and things like that. Um, the other thing that you know I talk to all my patients about, especially this group you're talking about, is as we talk about the kind of organ they are willing to consider. I like to say getting a liver, it's not really a new liver. It's it's almost like getting a, a used car in a way, right? It's been used by someone else. And so just like when you go to a used car lot, there are a variety of used, used um, cars. And just like this liver, there are a variety of qualities to those organs. So these organs, some of them um, may have what I like to say just some little issue with them, but they are fine organs, but they would be called an expanded criteria donor liver. So how do you decide? You have a patient sitting there, they need a liver. How do you decide whether that liver really is a good liver? So what we try to do is, first off, anticipate the needs of the patient, as, as Skip just said. Um, those patients who are sicker and maybe their MELD score isn't capturing it, we want to make sure that we've looked at every liver potential for them. Going back to your question, how do we know if that's a good liver? It is, it's a little crystal ball-like, you know, because as Skip points out, every liver is used to some degree, and there are many variables of how the liver will function. We look at what the donor has gone through prior to brain death, uh, if it's a brain-dead donor, and make an assessment based on what we know, how that donor matches up with historical donors around the country. And there's a, a series of uh, metrics that we can use. Again, they're never perfect, but they can get you into a sort of a, a ballpark category. So some centers do living liver transplants. Others don't. Correct. How does a living liver transplant work? So in, in that case, um, as with any major surgery, so the living donor, you have to have a, a program established with expertise and focus in living liver donation. It's a technically challenging operation, but for people with expertise in liver surgery, it's doable. There are risks involved to the donor, much as there are in, say, living kidney donation. In living kidney donation, we talk about the, the severe, the major risks at being roughly one in a thousand. And that includes death, includes major, major complications. In the liver field, the current number is closer to one in 300 to one in 400. So it's a, obviously a, 
a more palpable number. Centers that do living liver donation or living liver transplants typically are looking at the balance between their deceased donor pool and the needs of their patients. There, there is sort of this um, balance that you want to achieve because you want to do enough of them per year to make sure, you know, to keep the machine efficient and optimized. It helps give the patients the greatest benefit. So there are some regions of the country that have, have put in more effort into that, have very active programs. The other area where living liver donation comes into play is when you're looking at a very small recipient. So that's the case of pediatrics, a child. And that's where living liver liver donor transplant started. If you look at an infant, you know, two years old, three years old or, or younger, they can oftentimes match up suitably from a volume standpoint with one third or one quarter of an adult's liver. And when you look at the liver, it's not a rectangular box, it's actually segmented. So we can remove two of those segments intact in together and use that as the graft for the pediatric recipient. And that meets a need that is truly unmet in the deceased donor pool because there are very few pediatric deceased donors. Um, so when you look at living liver transplant, the ratio is you know, it's weighted significantly towards pediatric recipients, typically from a parent. Sure, because if you're a parent right. and you have a sick child giving... No question. No question, yeah. Skim, what are the questions that patients ask you just as they are put on the list? What are common questions? Uh, well, we've already touched on one. How, how long will I wait is probably the most common one. What, what, what can I expect? And I, told, I, I tell them what I just said. I tell it, a lot of it depends on how sick they are, where their melt score is. Um, and then the next question they actually, and I defer them to David, is they often want to know, you know, how long am I going to be in the hospital? What's my recovery time? How long will it be? Can I, when can I get back on my feet and get back to work? Those are the questions that I guess I, I get most often. So, David, how long are they going to be in the hospital and when do they get back on their feet? So, and they started out pretty ill to start with. Right, exactly. So we, you have to factor that in. And, and as we know in medicine, we, we always speak in averages when we wear long white coats. It's always hard to predict for each individual patient. But I, I give them the reference point to say that the average length of stay in the hospital is roughly 10 days. And that's usually two days in the ICU, eight days on the floor before they're ready to be discharged. But you bring up a very good point. The very sick, malnourished, deconditioned patient is unlikely to be here for only 10 days. They have more hurdles to get to to make that recovery so that they can be independent, be independent in their functions outside of the hospital. So those people do tend to be here a little bit longer. Uh, when I talk to patients about recovery, and, and this is almost independent of how ill they were, I tell them it's a six-month recovery. Because remember, transplant is one part, the major operation, second part, reconditioning from how sick you were, and the third part is all these medications you have to take to prevent what's called rejection, where your body tries to attack the organ. And as we know, medicines have side effects, and the side effects kind of build on top of one another, so it takes a while until patients really kind of feel themselves. Let's go back to that living donor question. How long do you tell a living donor parent they're going to be in the hospital and can they then take care of their child? Right. So undergoing major surgery like that, they're going to be in the hospital 
on average, if it's the small part of the liver, I would anticipate they, they average around five to seven days in the hospital. If you're doing a donation where an adult donates almost half their liver to another adult, they're likely to be in the hospital closer to two weeks because it's a bigger operation. And again, as we, as we follow them through that progression. But the key question you just asked is taking care of their child. So they are in no physical condition to take care of their child two weeks after major surgery. So essentially, we've now created two patients. And a lot of what we do in the transplant evaluation is looking for what that social structure and, and infrastructure of support would look like for the patient or patients to make sure that's going to be in place for the next six, six weeks or longer in the case of a living donor uh, so until they both have recovered. Once you have transplanted a patient, how long do they end up seeing you? Is this a lifelong commitment or is this a relatively short no, I, I, we, I always tell them that you, this, this is a life-changing event. They will forever be seen and connected with us. If they move out of the area, we will try and get them connected with another transplant center wherever they move to. Um, now, granted, as the years go on, we hope that they will only be, need to be seen maybe annually, but um, they, they should not think that they're going to leave the realm of a transplant center, really. And anecdotally, I'll add that they really do look at this as an unbreakable bond. I, I personally have two patients who have followed me, uh, one who just moved to North Carolina, who I transplanted 23 years ago and wanted to pick up care with me. She had been with the team where I was in my training. And another one was a pediatric patient who also I transplanted around 25 years ago who we've been following. So they really do develop quite a bond with the transplant programs. And it's a very unique bond and actually a great opportunity for our trainees to see longitudinal care delivered in that way. Skip, you are an avid fly fisher person. What has fly fishing taught you about liver transplantation? Or what has liver transplantation taught you about fly fishing? Um, I actually go fly fishing to um, get away from my work a bit. That's but, what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not usually thinking about it. But, um, no, it, well, for one thing, if, if anyone is listening as a fly fisherman, um, if there's nothing that fly fishing teaches you, it teaches you patience. Uh, it teaches you patience, and it teaches you to be somewhat meticulous. And it teaches you how to concentrate. When you're working a fish, Dr. Falk knows he's a fisherman too. Um, a very bad one. Well, I have been known to be focused so focused on a fish that I did not see a grizzly bear coming up on me when I was fishing in Alaska. So you get very, very focused, and you're very paying attention to every little detail. So I guess that's what um, brings back to me for what my work is. So, Dr. Gerber, you also have another career in the military. How has your military experience influenced how you think about liver transplantation or transplantation in general, since you also take care of kidney patients? Sure. Great question, but not nearly as exciting as the fly fishing question. <laughs> so clearly I'm not as, I'm more boring than Skip. Um, so the military experience, you know, as short as I can answer, and I never answer quickly to anything, um, has certainly given me an opportunity to look at other large systems and how they run and how what the analytical thinking is that goes into decisions. Um, and obviously, I'm not out there fighting wars on the front line, but I, I do get to read a lot about that. And, and the, pro the thought processes that are involved in 
running large programs with multiple individuals, multiple personalities, um, getting alignment, co- uh, consensus are things that I definitely have learned from the military and, and hopefully been able to apply here at UNC. What is really clear from talking with the two of you is that uh, this is really a team. Uh, it's a team more than just in words. It's a team of individuals who absolutely uh, interact, can kid around with each other, but are focused on making sure that the patient uh, gets through this experience unscathed. Yeah, and, and that's partly why I am in this field. I've, I've always been better when I'm around other people who are uh, focused and uh, passionate about what they're doing as in a team. Um, for example, here, what's been nice, at least a couple of our hepatologists, we are we share space in the clinic, and I think that's true a lot of the our transplant programs here. So we have a single clinic and it's great. We get to interact and bump into each other and we get to see our patients after, before transplant. So as a patient, you are really seeing a team that is localized together, that works together and can kid each other all at the same time. Yeah, that's one of the great things about transplant. Um, You know, again, as we teach residents and students, we say, you know, most of medicine you kind of can function in a silo, except transplant is so multidisciplinary in its nature. And you know this, obviously, kidney transplant much the same way. And we do enjoy, it's great to have joint clinics because we do, we see patients at different stages. Where would you suggest patients look for additional information? Is there a reasonably accurate uh, source of information? Yeah, well, on the, the pre-side, um, uh, in other words, before you get a transplant, if you you have a liver disease and or cirrhosis, um, there's the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, which is our major uh, U.S. liver organization for uh, physicians and care, health care providers. And then there's something called the American Liver Foundation, which is an, uh, an also a great source of information. So I usually point people there. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gerber and Dr. Hayashi. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dr. Falk. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks.